The famed ship California, a ship of Welcome to the Not All Better Show. I'm your host, Paul Vogelsang, and this is episode number 388. Today's show is brought to you by Plexidome. As part of our Smithsonian Associates Art of Living author interview series, our guest today is historian, author, Stephen Ujifusa. Stephen Ujifusa has appeared as a guest on the CBS Sunday Morning Show and NPR in his new book, Barons of the Sea, brings to life the dynasties that built and owned the magnificent clipper ships of America's 19th century era of maritime glory. At 7 o'clock, as dawn broke over the red and green dappled coastline, a schooner drew up alongside Flying Cloud, carrying a pilot that would guide the ship through the Golden Gate and into San Francisco Harbor. For several weeks, as the ship sped along at full clip, the crew had been hard at work getting the Flying Cloud ready for a triumphant arrival. They painted her weather-beaten sides jet black, touched up the gold boot topping line that accented her hull, tarred her rigging, scrubbed the decks, and polished the brass until it gleamed in the morning sun. Now her moment had come, Flying Cloud sailed past the former Spanish fortress known as the Presidio, and then past the Marin Headlands, and up the bay to the docks. The crew then unbent and stowed all sails before a steam tug assisted her to her berth. It was September 1st, 1851. Captain Creasy's log entry for the day was as laconic as ever. Anchored in San Francisco Harbor at 11 hours, 30 minutes, a.m., after a passage of 89 days, 21 hours. The operator of the semaphore tower atop Telegraph Hill cranked the two wooden arms to the signal for a ship. One plank pointed diagonal upward, the other pointed diagonally downward, oriented to the right. Hundreds of people swarmed out of the homes, offices, warehouses, and saloons of the city and clustered along the north beach to watch the swan-like clipper arrive at her anchorage. Aboard ship, Sour Bone was exuberant about their safe and speedy arrival. Everyone here is talking about our passage, she wrote, the quickest ever known. A cavalcade of clerks was already stampeding toward the waterfront, eager to get their hands on the ship's cargo and sell it for high prices and great profit. From the ship's mizzenmast flew a huge American flag marked with 30 stars. It was already out of date. Congress had adopted the 31-star flag, welcoming Wisconsin into the Union on July 4th, which the passengers and crew of the Flying Cloud had celebrated off the rainy coast of Brazil. Flying Cloud docked next to the slightly smaller but no less elegant N.B. Palmer, which had arrived in San Francisco 10 days earlier and was still in port preparing for her leg to China run. Lowe made no mention of the cloud's record in his recollections of the MB Palmer stay in San Francisco. Perhaps the young captain was stealing himself to beat the flying cloud across the Pacific. That, of course, is our guest today on the Not Old Better Show, Stephen Ujafusa, reading from his new book, Barons of the Sea. Stephen Ujafusa is with us today, and he'll be appearing at the Smithsonian Associates Program Wednesday, October 23rd, 2019. More information is available at our website. But now, please join me in welcoming via internet phone author, historian Stephen Ujafusa. When we arrived in Rio, we lay there quite a while. Stephen Ujafusa, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me, Paul. It's great to talk to you. I think this is a fascinating subject. There are a lot of things that I get to talk to people about that I'm not sure I really fully grasp until I kind of get into the research a little bit and find out just the uh, a smidgen of what it is that uh, the subject is about. This one's a fascinating one. I think our audience is going to love it. So let's dive in a little bit. Why don't, you, why don't you start by telling us briefly about your upcoming Smithsonian Associates presentation? Well, I'm going to be speaking about... Uh 
the great American clipper ships. But I will be talking about America's role in the China trade, which gave birth to the clipper ship trade, these uh, fast uh, and uh, very profitable uh, sailing ships that ruled the seas from the 1840s until the time of the Civil War and made a small number of American families um, extraordinarily wealthy, including the grandfather of Franklin Delano Roosevelt. In fact, his uh, maternal grandfather, Warren Delano II, uh, was uh, the first man to, or owned the first clipper ship to sail from New York to San Francisco during the gold rush. And also, the clipper ships played a very strong role in the building of San Francisco and the state of California during the gold rush. Uh, they were able to transport uh, all sorts of goods uh, at very high speeds around uh, Cape Horn uh, from the East Coast to build the city of San Francisco. Thank you for that. I, it, again, I just think this is fascinating. Of course, uh, clipper ships brings to mind these these beautiful ships. I, I happen to be looking at a, at the cover jacket of your of your new book, Barons of the Sea, and on that cover jacket is a picture of these beautiful clipper ships, uh, a rendering artist rendering, but still beautiful. We'll put we'll put a, a copy of the cover of your book on uh, our website so that people can actually see this. I'm sure people in their minds I know what these ships look like, but maybe tell us a little bit more about these great ships the Clipper ships and, and why they were so important to American progress. Well, the Clipper ship, uh, it was a very specific type of vessel. People today, they see a three-masted full rig vessel and think, oh, that's a Clipper ship. Well, there are no active Clipper ships sailing the seas today. There's only one left uh, preserved, and she's a British Clipper ship, the uh, Cuddy Sark, which is now in dry dock in Greenwich, England. But all the American-built extreme Clipper ships from the 1840s to the 1860s have uh, disappeared. They've either been sunk or burned or broken up for uh, scrap. Uh, but these ships were a very specific type. A clipper ship was a three-masted, full-rigged ship built first and foremost for speed over capacity. So they had sharp bows and uh, very, very high riggings. Uh, some of their masts, some of these clipper ships, their masts reached 150, 200 feet in the air. And because they carried so much canvas, they were very expensive to operate uh, requiring crews of 50 to 60 men. And uh, these ships reached speeds that were that were absolutely unbelievable uh, in the mid-19th century. Uh, in the early 19th century, a typical American merchantman could maybe sail between 8 to 10 knots in a good breeze. Uh, that's like maybe 12 to 13 miles an hour. Uh, but by 1850, 1851, these innovative ships were able to sail at speeds of 18 to 22 knots. And in fact, the uh, clipper ship on the cover of Barons of the Sea, which is the Sovereign of the Seas, built by the Boston clipper ship builder Donald McKay in 1852, she apparently for a very brief period clocked 22 knots, which is around 25 miles an hour. And just for a sense of perspective, the fastest ocean-going paddle-wheel transatlantic steamship could only travel 13 knots. And 22 knots was about the service speed of the RMS Titanic, uh, built uh, 60 years later. So just to give a sense of perspective of how fast these ships were. So when you talk about speed, what comes to mind certainly is this idea of racing, but these ships were built for both trade and races. What was it that was going on from a technological standpoint around 1850 that really lent itself to the development of these boats that were speedy, but yet could be used for trade? Well, uh, there were two things that were going on. Uh, the first was the American-China trade. Uh, you had a number of uh, men from New England and New York who spent time in 
uh, Canton, China, modern-day Guangzhou, where they uh, established themselves in the tea trade. But, uh, of course, as we all know, the American Revolution was actually touched off by uh, a demand for tea. And after the revolution, uh, a number of enterprising Yankees stepped in, sailed to uh, Canton and set up businesses there to export tea back to the United States. The dark side of the business was that America did not produce a whole lot of things that the Chinese wanted to buy. So they picked up what the British had been doing since the mid-18th century and began smuggling opium on consignment or on their own accounts from India or from Turkey. That's actually what paid for the tea and uh, made a lot of these uh, men quite wealthy. And uh, the clipper ships were made possible by uh, the high price and high demand of tea. And in the uh, early 1840s, um, uh, China and uh, Great Britain went to war over opium in the first opium war. And this, uh, the defeat of China in the uh, first opium war, this basically opened up uh, four additional ports to Western trade, uh, including uh, in addition to Canton. Uh, this was the beginning of the so-called century of humili humiliation. But uh, this cracked open the Chinese market and unfortunately allowed a lot more opium to flow into the Chinese economy, uh, into the Chinese market. And this precipitated the uh, construction of these uh, bigger uh, clipper ships, these China trading vessels, were actually based off of, in many ways, the designs of small opium smuggling schooners um, known as opium clippers. So that sharp underwater hull shape was uh, actually derived from opium smuggling vessels. Only uh, these enterprising uh, Yankee ship owners and New York and Boston shipbuilders, they basically took the design of the opium clipper uh, and put three masts on it, uh, expand it greatly to ships of 200 or even 300 feet in length. And they were able to carry um, large amounts of tea back to the United States. And this caused a huge uh, uh, race. I mean, these ships were able to sail, uh, a, a typical ship sailing uh, from uh, uh, China to New York or Boston before the Clipper Ship Railroad would might take uh, about six months uh, to travel with its uh, cargo of tea. Uh, by the mid-1840s, Clipper ships such as the Sea Witch, built in New York, uh, cut down that time to 74 days, which is pretty remarkable, six months to 74 days. And whatever ship arrived in New York or Boston first with a cargo of tea sold it for the highest prices. And today, we think of tea as a commodity that you can pick up any time of the year. You just go to Whole Foods or your local grocery store and just pick it up whenever you want. Well, uh, back then, tea was picked only once a year, and whatever ship arrived first uh, would uh, and unloaded its tea at the New York or Boston docks uh, that ship uh, uh, got a, the owners uh, basically were able to charge the highest rates. So it's a very different uh, economy from what we know now. Today with Amazon, we just take global shipping <laughs> for granted. Back then, <laughs> this was super competitive. And the clipper ship owners, such as Warren Donald II uh, and uh, Moses Grinnell of New York, uh, and uh, John Murray Forbes of Boston, these were the Jeff Bezos of their day. They owned clipper ships as almost as uh, fast means of transport. They're beautiful to look at, mm -hmm. but they are pure laissez-faire uh, capitalism mm -hmm. operated with no regulations whatsoever. Speed was what mattered. 
Hi, it's Paul, and we'll be right back with author, historian Stephen Ujifusa and his presentation, The Clipper Ships, Sailing Ships That Ruled the Trade Routes. But first, here's a question for you. Do you feel younger than you appear? Under eye bags, crow's feet, and wrinkles often add years to our appearance, and we all get this. The reality is it can sting when someone thinks you're 10 years older than you really are, crushing to the ego and the confidence level plummets. Well, now let's talk about a quick and easy fix. Plexiderm, a clinically studied serum that visibly eliminates wrinkles, crow's feet, fine lines, and under eye bags in minutes. That's right, minutes. It's exactly what you need to win the battle against Father Time and restore your confidence. Don't believe it? I didn't either until I tried it. Now, I don't let my skin give away my age. (laughs) Within minutes, I was looking like my younger self again. Not like a movie star young, but a younger version of me. The best part is, Plexiderm goes on clear so nobody will know you're using it, unless you tell them and the effects last for hours. This is an important benefit to Plexiderm. It works for you personally. Go to tryplexiderm.com and use my code, NOTOLDBETTER, for 50% off plus an additional $10 off. That's right, 50% off plus an extra $10 off. This offer is also available by calling 1-800-685-1292 and mentioning the code, NOTOLDBETTER. Plexiderm is backed by a 30-day money-back guarantee. Visit tryplexiderm.com today and use the code NOTOLDBETTER at checkout. That's tryplexiderm.com. Thanks, everybody. And now back to our guest, author, historian, Stephen Ujifusa and his presentation, The Clipper Ships, Sailing Ships That Ruled the Trade Routes. We are with author, historian, Stephen Ujifusa. So Stephen Ujifusa, you generously read from your book for us today, and we certainly appreciate that. But let's talk a little bit about the, the trips that were sailed around the Cape Horn and on their way to California from New York, and exactly how they built the state, because this was fundamental to the population and to the development of the state of California in that time, in the gold rush. Well, think of it this way. Uh, Before the gold rush, before gold was discovered in California in the late 1840s, San Francisco uh, was a little fishing village of only 2,000 people. Uh, California had been uh, conquered by uh, or taken by the United States from Mexico after the Mexican War. And uh, San Francisco, modern San Francisco, was a only 2,000 people, a few Yankee traders, some uh, had, had already set up shop there. But with the discovery of gold uh, in uh, 1848, all of a sudden, huge numbers of people, mostly men from the East Coast, dropped everything they were doing and tried to find a way to San Francisco to strike it rich with the hopes of striking it rich. So San Francisco grew from this little village to a major metropolis of a few hundred thousand people within the space of a few years. Uh, And the old saying is, in order to get rich during a gold rush, you don't dig for gold, you sell stuff (laughs) to the people digging for gold. So uh, one prosperous China trader, Warren Delano II, who is one of the main characters in my book, he owned a clipper ship on the China trade called the Memnon. And what he decided to do, what was extremely cagey, was he said, hey, um, everyone's trying to get to San Francisco. They're taking the overland route uh, uh, by, uh, with horse and wagon. They are taking steamships uh, going, uh, that sail from 
uh, New York to uh, uh, to Panama, then over the Isthmus of Panama to uh, then on to San Francisco where they catch another steamship. But that's not a very efficient way of carrying cargo. Uh, steamships already by the 1840s and 1850s were making long ocean routes. So they had the passenger and mail route uh, business locked up. But in order to carry large amounts of freight efficiently, you can't unload in Panama, then take it across the isthmus, and then put it on another ship. That just doesn't make sense. So he took his clipper ship, the Memnon, and uh, sailed it, loaded up full of chairs, tables, provisions, uh, booze, you name it, stuff that's needed to build and supply a great city, sailed it around Cape Horn. And a typical sailing voyage uh, before the clipper ship, like a clipper ship like the Memnon, was six months around treacherous Cape Horn, 10,000 miles, probably the most dangerous sea route on the globe. The Memnon cut that time down to 121 days in, 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 in 1849. By 1851, the Flying Cloud uh, had sailed from New York to San Francisco in 89 days, 21 hours. And then two years later, she broke her own record uh, under sail, 89 days, 8 hours. And that record stood under sail until 1989. And these clipper ships were able to pay off the cost of their construction in a single profitable voyage. They could clear $100,000 to $200,000 in a single voyage, which translates to tens of millions of dollars today. And uh, this was was big business. And these clipper ships would race each other. Uh, There's some wonderful passages from the uh, memoirs of Captain Charles Porter Lowe of his ship, the M.B. Palmer, racing uh, the flying cloud uh, along the coast of uh, South America. This, this was big stakes business. This is exciting stuff, too. And, and your new book, The Barons of the Sea, which captures a lot of this, is getting rave reviews. It just has some fascinating stories from the building of the ships to these eccentric shipbuilders to some of these dashing captains and, and the merchants. And, and so tell us maybe, tell us your favorite story from the book that you, that you came across in your research. Well, I love the character of uh, Charles Porter Lowe, who uh, was the youngest of several children of the Lowe family of Brooklyn. And uh, his family had made a fortune in the China trade business. And Charles bro- Charles's brother, Abiel Abbott Lowe, was uh, arguably the most successful operator of clipper ships uh, on the East Coast. He owned a very uh, prosperous fleet of uh, uh, clipper ships in the China trade and the San Francisco trade. In fact, his clipper ships did a very profitable round-the-world business. But his youngest brother, Charles Porterlow, uh, really wanted to go to sea since he was a little kid. And uh, uh, Abbott Lowe basically felt that that was not a profitable or proper path for um, uh, members of the Lowe family to do. Captains... They could make some money, but he wanted his brother to be a merchant. And uh, Captain Charles Porter Lowe, in his wonderful memoirs, recalled how, as a 14-year-old, he tried to stow away on one of his brother's ships by uh, hiding away in a locker. And uh, finally, he was uh, given the chance to become third mate uh, of a clipper ship uh, called the uh, Hauqua, and eventually became the ship's captain. And during a passage uh, to China uh, through the Indian Ocean in the 1840s, He's only 23 years old. He's captain of this uh, of his brother's clipper ship, the Hao Kwa. And uh, the ship is hit by a gigantic uh, gale and, in fact, is hit by several consecutive rogue waves that roll the ship onto its side. And he is basically able to uh, uh, prevent the ship from sinking and is able to sail into uh, Hong Kong Harbor uh, with 
basically one stump of three of a mass left. Uh, the ship is jury rigged. And uh, he recounts how actually he's able to turn somewhat of a profit on this voyage because he's able to sell uh, the, a lot of the ruined cargo to, uh, to people on the docks versus going through the commission house. And uh, he returns back to New York afraid that uh, his uh, brother and other people at the A.A. Lowen Company firm are going to be uh, furious at him. But in fact, he is uh, uh, presented with a uh, handsome uh, silver chronometer. Uh, for having uh, uh, saved the ship from uh, from being wrecked. And in, it's that moment that he redeems himself in the eyes of his uh, brother and other members of his family that, yes, he has chosen uh, the right profession. In fact, the Hao Kua, the, that clipper ship, was named after the Chinese merchant Wu Ping Chen, who uh, was head of the China, basically one of uh, 12 or so Chinese merchants who were allowed to do business uh, with uh, the American merchants, and he was arguably the richest, arguably the richest non-sovereign in the world through his uh, wealth and the tea business, and uh, he sort of served as a kind of a godfather to many of these American merchants, including Abel Abbott Lowe, John Murray Forbes, and uh, his portrait was uh, was he gave his portrait as a gift to many of his quote unquote American sons. And if you saw a portrait of Hao Kwa hanging in a parlor in Boston or New York, that meant that you were in the home of someone who was more or less in a very, very exclusive club. So it was a very, uh, the figure of Hao Kwa was fascinating as, as a person. Who, and there's no small wonder that one of the first clipper ships was named after Hao Kwa. These are fascinating stories, exciting, exhilarating even. Uh, we are with the author, Stephen Ujifusa, historian, author of the new book, Barons of the Sea, so well-written and so well-researched. We just appreciate your time, Stephen Ujifusa. We're looking forward to seeing you coming up in uh, a couple of weeks now, October 23rd. So um, I just want to encourage my my audience to to check out this book again Stephen Ujifusa will put links to where you can find more information about Stephen Ujifusa in his book Barons of the Sea but thank you so much for your generous time and all these great stories I love it I could talk to you for a lot longer Stephen Ujifusa thank you so much great talking with you Paul thanks to Plexiderm for sponsoring our show today and my special thanks to Stephen Ujifusa for joining me today and thanks always to the wonderful Smithsonian team for all they do to support the show Talk about better. The not old better show. Thanks, everybody. To the dashing Spanish girls I met around Cape Horn. <laughs> <laughs>